you for staying here. I noticed that you've been thinning out quite a lot uh, <laughs> as an audience, and I hope that's not in anticipation of, of being bored to tears by me. But anyway, you happy few who've remained behind. Uh, uh, thank you. Uh, and secondly, a sort of apology in advance, because um, uh, I'm going to try and cause a bit of dissent and disagreement, because I think we've been far too polite to one another, and we've all been agreeing pretty much up to now. And uh, I think it's very important, therefore, um, uh, to, uh, to, to... Well, what I've done is, is to look at one or two of the more conservative uh, declinists, because I think looking at the lefties is, is like shooting fish in a barrel. You know, it's a bit too easy, and uh, we, can, we can all agree on that. But uh, it's really the real debate here, the interesting debate, is, is, is actually uh, on the centre-right. So uh, that's where I'm going to focus. Um, and finally, an apology, because none of us saw our papers in advance before we read them, so I'm afraid there's a bit of overlap, and, and uh, one or two people, such as Keith Winshuttle, have stolen my thunder. So, again an apology in advance. Um, right. How often do we hear the word decline applied to America, Europe, and the West? The rhetoric of decline has become a staple of our public discourse, so much so that most hardly <coughs> notice when it crosses the line from rationality to fantasy. The distinction is important and easy enough to apply. If a commentator claims that, quote, Europe is in demographic decline, unquote. He's making a statement about a statistical fact. Birth rates across much of the European continent have indeed been falling for many years, which can be quantified, verified, and tested. If, on the other hand, a commentator claims that, quote, America's decline is inevitable, unquote, he's making a whole series of assumptions that are based not on facts, but on what I call the mythology of decline. I want to examine the origins and purposes of that mythology in order to help us to distinguish the legitimate use of the term decline from the mythological one, which invariably serves an ideological agenda, what we may call declinism. And if my analysis helps to clear the somewhat fetid atmosphere that pervades this debate, in which self-fulfilling prophecies of American decline abound, if I can hasten the decline of declinism in other words, then that is a job worth doing. Let us begin with Gibbon. Had the author of the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire not written such consummate prose, had he not dared to laugh the sacred to scorn and elevate the profane to respectability, perhaps his unwieldy work would not have enjoyed classical status almost from the day of publication of the first volume. We all remember, you know, King George's comment about, uh, you know, not another uh, great fat book, Mr. Gibbon. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, but everyone knew from the day it appeared that this was a great work, and it's remained probably the most remarkable work of history uh, ever written. We have been meditating on the possibility of our own decline and fall ever since. If Gibbon saw in Rome a parable of the perils of religious enthusiasm, the church having first undermined, then supplanted the state, his intellectual posterity extended his paradigm to create a romantic cult of decline. It was as natural 
that the Enlightenment should view imperial decline as a consequence of irrationalism as that the Romantics should blame rationalism for the same phenomenon. As the 19th century wore on, thinkers seized on novel forces they saw emerging in their own day to explain decline. Malthus identified demography, Tocqueville democracy, Buckle climatology, Marx capitalism, Gobineau race, Nordau urbanization. Everybody had a different terminus postquem or starting point for decline. Newman dated it from the Reformation, Kierkegaard from the early church, Nietzsche from ancient Greece, Bachofen from the end of matriarchy, Freud from the dawn of civilization. In this age of progress and optimism, decline was actually ubiquitous. In biology, Darwin had described the descent of man from the primeval slime. In physics, Clausius and Kelvin had described the irreversible entropy of the universe in the second law of thermodynamics. And in metaphysics, Schopenhauer had described life as a business that does not cover its costs. Rather <laughs> reminiscent of our own time, isn't it, um, in politics. Um, yet, it was not in the 19th, but in the 20th century, that the mythology of decline really got going. The era of the World Wars and the Cold War, which witnessed the rise and fall of Mussolini's Roman Empire, Hitler's thousand-year Reich, and Lenin's dictatorship of the proletariat, was bound to generate theories of decline. But the most influential of them all was the one that embraced the West, a concept that was just becoming fashionable as the European empires reached their zenith in the years before 1914. Exactly a century ago, an obscure Prussian schoolmaster by the name of Oswald Spengler had a revelation. 1911 was the year of the Agadir crisis. Pretty much forgotten now, but actually quite an important crisis. The, it was the Kaiser's clumsy attempt to emulate Bismarck's Ems telegram, the ingenious ruse that had tempted Napoleon III into the Franco-Prussian War with disastrous consequences, not only for Napoleon III, but for France. Agadir was the crisis that gave gunboat diplomacy its name. It turned out badly for the Germans, and especially for the Kaiser, who lost his nerve and with it his influence over the political and military elite, who would take matters into their own hands three years later after the assassination in Sarajevo, with catastrophic consequences not only for Germany but for Western civilization. It is curious, isn't it, as a, a little contemporary parallel, that Israel's enemies, Iran, Egypt, and Turkey, have all been playing at gunboat diplomacy lately, sending warships through the Suez Canal or threatening to break the naval blockade of Gaza. My guess is that they will back down as soon as they encounter firm resistance, just as the dispatch of the German gunboat Panther to Agadir, uh, which forced the French and the British to react forcefully, ended in humiliation for the Kaiser and his high seas fleet. Now, whether, of course, uh, the Turks and the Iranians will encounter firm resistance from President Obama, let alone uh, the British and French, is another matter. I very much hope, hope they do, because otherwise we're headed for another Middle Eastern war. 
Anyway, the spectacle of that humiliation prompted intimations of civilizational mortality in Spengler. Two decades later, on the eve of Hitler's seizure of power, Spengler looked back on that moment when his big idea came to him. Quote, I was disgusted by the idiocy of our policy, which calmly acquiesced in the completion of the encirclement of Germany by the blindness of all the elites that did not believe in a war that had in reality already broken out, by the criminal and suicidal optimism which boasted of our rise since 1870, our assumed but in reality long since squandered power base, our seeming wealth, which was actually only for the shop window, and which dismissed any notion that all this might fundamentally change. And behind this, I saw the unavoidable revolution, which both Metternich and Bismarck had clearly foreseen, and had to come, and not only for Germany, whether or not we came home victorious. He wrote all that in 1932. Of course, with the benefit of hindsight. Whether he really foresaw all that is another matter. But anyway... Spengler saw Marx, interesting, the point about the revolution, as an Englishman, and Marxism as a perversion of Manchester, what we would call free market liberalism. This would have surprised Marx as much as his critics, but perhaps Spengler was onto something. The evolution of China into a market economy run by a one-party state, still based on the dictatorship of the proletariat, shows that Marxism is in an important sense ideologically parasitical on capitalism. Only the free market can generate the wealth necessary to sustain a party apparatus and its sprawling system of political patronage. It makes little difference whether the party in question calls itself communist, fascist, or national socialist. In all three cases, the party has a monopoly on access to the market, which enables it to enrich its leaders and enforce obedience from capitalists. Uh, and just a footnote, uh, somebody was talking about uh, uh, the one-child policy and its dire effects in, in China. Um, I came across a terrifying statistic uh, yesterday. Uh, it's estimated that there have been 400 million abortions, many of them forced abortions, as a result of that one-child policy. I mean, a, a, a scale of human suffering and destruction of life um, which makes even, actually, you know, Mao's atrocities uh, seem uh, small. And, you know, that one-child policy, which the West has completely acquiesced in uh, and uh, doesn't even dare to criticize uh, when people like Joe Biden go to China, uh, it, it's deeply shocking. Anyway, back to Spengler. Spengler himself um, favored what he called Prussianism, Preussentum an idealized version of Frederick the Great's enlightened despotism. As Frederick's favorite philosopher Voltaire remarked, Prussia was Sparta in the morning and Athens in the afternoon. <laughs> but uh, as Voltaire discovered when he fell from grace, old Fritz was in practice more despotic than enlightened. That is why his militaristic brand of absolutism appealed so much to Carlyle, to Spengler, and to Hitler. Seven years and one world war after Spengler's premonition, his book appeared in 1918, just in time for the dissolution of the German Empire. Der Untergang des Abendlandes was translated as the decline of the West. But the German word Untergang 
is much more drastic than decline. Something like downfall would be closer. It was an apocalyptic vision for an apocalyptic time. Yet the war itself does not figure in the book, even indirectly. Spengler's, what he called his morphological method, which he claimed to have taken from Goethe, treated civilizations as organisms, um, uh, as Roger uh, explained earlier on. Uh, Western civilization has, had long since passed its creative zenith, and like others before it, had now entered an era of Caesars, empire builders such as Cecil Rhodes, for whom Spengler harbored boundless admiration. Spengler was an extreme historicist, that is, a historical relativist. He believed that Western science, philosophy, and art, not to mention religion and morality, had no objective validity, but merely expressed the peculiar products of our time and place, the ephemera of a transient culture already in the grip of dissolution. Spengler is no longer read much today, but the influence of his mythology of decline persists. Take, for example, among present-day writers, the eminent sociologist Robert Bella. Robert Bella, many years at Harvard, now based in California, his new book, Religion in Human Evolution, from the Paleolithic to the Axial Age, is a work of comparable range to the decline of the West, and its scholarship is indubitably sounder. Indeed, such luminaries as Jürgen Habermas and Charles Taylor have enthused about Bella's magnum opus, hailing it as the greatest contribution to the sociology of religion since Max Weber a century ago. Yet Bella's conclusion is pure Spengler. I quote, if there is one primary practical intent in a work like this that deals with the broadest sweep of biological and cultural evolution, it is that the hour is late. It is imperative that humans wake up to what is happening and take the necessarily dramatic steps that are so clearly needed, but also at present so clearly ignored by the powers of this earth. For Bella, then, the threat of climate change serves the same function that the threat of world war did for Spengler. Bella also <coughs> shares Spengler's historicism, only with an anti-Western bias. Again, I quote, to assume that we, particularly if we mean by that the modern West, have universal truths based on revelation, philosophy, or science that we can enforce on others is the ideological aspect of racism, imperialism, and colonialism, unquote. Bella sees his work as a demonstration that, quote, we are all in this together, which will make just a bit more likely the actualization of Kant's dream of a world civil society that could at last restrain the violence of state-organized societies towards each other and the environment, unquote. Bella's dream, I, I submit, would be most people's nightmare because the only states that are ever likely to be restrained by world civil society are Western states, leaving them hopelessly exposed to the aggression of the rest. Despite the incessant invocation of Kant's essay on perpetual peace uh, to undermine American exceptionalism by liberal professors like Bella, the sage of Königsberg himself would have been horrified by the way in which the mythology of Western decline has infected academic discourse on international relations. The UN itself, supposedly inspired by Kant's vision, 
is the best illustration of what has gone wrong. Predicated on the notion that the power of the West is the problem rather than the solution, the UN and the rest of world civil society goes to inordinate lengths to cut the US and its allies down to size, while simultaneously blackmailing the West into donating protection money, known as aid, to some of the most nefarious despots on the planet. The proposed new state of Palestine, now legitimized by the UN General Assembly as we speak, uh, depends entirely on such ransoms, most of which sticks to the fingers of the terrorists and their civilian sponsors. Without the mythology of decline, the West would refuse to acquiesce in such a grotesque extortion racket. A minority of recent writers on American decline, however, do so more in sorrow than in schadenfreude. Among them, two stand out, Neil Ferguson and Mark Stein. I apologize to uh, Keith that you've already heard quite a lot about Neil Ferguson's book. And my, my paper goes over a bit of the same ground, but with a slightly different critique. Um, Ferguson's Civilization, the West and the Rest, is the latest in a long line of books in the genre of decline mythology launched by Spengler. Ferguson is, however, no ardent declinist. His books on British and American history, empire and colossus, are emphatically <coughs> pro-Western. So, too, is civilization. It is just that. Once Orientals have learned to imitate the key features that led to Western dominance, they are bound to catch up with and even overtake their mentors, so says Ferguson. And so he concludes that the West will inevitably cede hegemony to the Asian powers, among which China and India were latecomers, but are all the more successful for that. He also thinks that the Chinese are already, uh, almost, they're almost ready to take over. <coughs> Quote, what we are living through now is the end of 500 years of Western predominance, unquote. Ferguson, incidentally, is also unwittingly echoing Spengler when he talks up the threat of China. In Years of Decision, his sequel to The Decline of the West, Spengler warned against the Oriental peril. Uh, he was writing in about 1936, shortly before he died. Spengler saw the West overwhelmed by Asian hordes, and it is true that the European emperors <coughs> were defeated by the Japanese with extraordinary speed in 1941 to 42. However, the Western champion, the US, struck back even harder, ensuring not only the defeat of Imperial Japan, but the ultimate triumph of the Western model across much of the Far East. The trouble with China is not that it is commercially successful. If the West had not allowed Mao to triumph in the 1940s, the Chinese Industrial Revolution would have come two generations earlier, sooner. No, the trouble is not the commercial success of China, but the fact that it is tyrannical, and like all tyrannies, lethally paranoid. It now has a satellite-guided missile system uh, specifically designed to annihilate carrier battle groups of the U.S. Sixth Fleet. This is bad news for America, but even worse for China's neighbors. Even so, there is nothing the Chinese can do that the Americans cannot do better, especially in the field of military technology. 
It is only the mythology of decline that prevents the U.S. from announcing a new Star Wars strategic defense initiative to deal with that Chinese threat, which, as I implied, is, is in reality a, great, a much greater threat to Taiwan and, and Japan and other, other near neighbors. The trouble with Ferguson's thesis is not that it lacks empirical evidence. He has accumulated an impressive range of statistics and other facts to buttress his argument. And he is, of course, right to point to the hole in the heart of the West, the cultural amnesia that has deprived generations of the core values that were once our secret weapon. I quote him, maybe the real threat is posed not by the rise of China, Islam, or CO2 emissions, but by our own loss of faith in the civilization we inherited from our ancestors, unquote. Well, I could go along with that. No, the problem with Ferguson is that he attaches too little weight to the powers of recuperation and renewal that the United States, and to a lesser extent Europe, have demonstrated over the past two centuries. The American Civil War came close to strangling the infant republic in its cradle, two world wars came even closer to damaging Europe beyond repair. Yet, both America and Europe have risen repeatedly from the ashes. The most remarkable example of all is, of course, Israel. The combination of European Jewish refugees and American Jewish support has created one of the most resilient nations and the most dynamic economies in the world. China and India cannot match the West's ability to regenerate itself. Ferguson does not seriously deny this fact, but it is actually fatal to his argument. He actually devotes a whole chapter to debunking the mythology of decline, yet willingly succumbs to its lure himself. Ferguson is that exasperating combination, a good historian and a bad prophet. But it is the future, not the past, that has always brought the greatest rewards, tempting those who can pass for omniscient to satisfy the insatiable curiosity of the gullible. Mark Stein resists this unscholarly temptation better than his more scholarly rival. Mark doesn't pretend to be a great you know, professor of history. This literary lumberjack who fells whole forests of liberal sacred oaks with his mordant wit, <laughs> has produced two books, America Alone and After America, which have done a great job of subverting the, the legitimacy claimed by the political classes in Europe and America for their self-aggrandizing projects and their self-destructive habits. On Europe, Stein is as damning as he is persuasive, from demographic suicide to the abdication of self-defense, he conducts a forensic analysis of the hollowing out of the high culture for which the continent was still respected even a generation ago. Indeed, Stein wrote off Europe years ago, content to be dictated to by dictators from Colonel Gaddafi to Colonel Putin. The European Union is much less than the sum of its parts. After two world wars, one Cold War, and now what Norman Podhoritz calls World War IV, Americans are as resentful of doing the heavy lifting, and Europeans are as ungrateful as ever. Yet, 
indignation and ingratitude are not a good basis for policy, and the U.S. still has interests as well as sentiments at stake in Europe. The Obama doctrine of leaving the world to stew in its own bile is neither practical nor decent. In fact, it is another product of the mythology of decline. No American statesman wants to be indicted when the cry goes up, who lost Europe? But if it is perverse of Mark Stein to write off Europe, it is surely even more perverse to write off America. The flavor of after America is indicated by its subtitle, Get Ready for Armageddon. Stein believes, we've already heard of eloquent description of the, the dust jacket of the book. I'm sorry, I forgot to bring it to show you, but anyway, you remember Uncle Sam laid out on the, uh, the mortuary. Oh, here it is. There we are. <laughs> there we are. Okay. Um, now, Stein believes that while Europeans had the good fortune to have the United States on hand to cushion its po their post-war decline, Americans will have no such luxury. No one's going to pick up the pieces for you guys. This is a fair point, but it is a stretch to conclude from this that the United States is on the brink of catastrophe, perhaps in the course of the next presidential term. Once again, the villain of the piece is China, which is expected by some, Stein apparently among them, to overtake the U.S. economy within the next few years. Stein has an original twist on the rise of China. He sees it as a much larger version of Islamist Iran, an aging totalitarian behemoth, demographically crippled by its one-child policy and rendered much more dangerous by its flaws. Stein also points out that, contrary to so much expert opinion over several decades, economic westernization has not so far led to meaningful political reform. Armageddon is just round the corner because for the first time in history, says Stein, a one-party state run by a Politburo is in the process of supplanting America not only as an economic superpower, but as a political and cultural one too. His favorite symbol is the steady shift from English to Mandarin as the world's predominant language. The charge is that it was on our watch that the world got used to paying homage and interest to an evil empire that doesn't even use the Roman alphabet. Now, Stein may be right in this analysis, who knows, but I don't see how he can have it both ways. Either China's rise is indeed Armageddon, or there is still everything to play for. Either America's multiple malaise are terminal, or what he calls the post-American world is still avoidable. Stein's concluding chapter is devoted to an action plan to restore American greatness. Decentralize, de-governmentalize, deregulate, demonopolize, decomplicate, decredentialize. That's all about you know the degree phenomenon which which Charles Murray talked about. Um, disentitle, denormalize. In short, what the Tea Party might adopt as a manifesto if it really were a party. All fine, but how does this radical action plan mesh with the withering mythology of decline which constitutes the rest of the book? Milton Friedman's rule, make the wrong people do the right thing, 
He's also Mark Steins. But how do you make an entire nation of wrong people do the right thing? Quote, America faces a choice, unquote, he writes. Amen to that. But he also rails against, quote, the inertia, the ennui, the fatalism uh, he sees all around him. So who are the Americans to whom Stein addresses himself? All those, presumably, who have not yet been corrupted by big government and indoctrinated by what he calls the Obama sire. But if there are enough of these ordinary Americans to make such an appeal meaningful, we must assume that the country is not necessarily facing meltdown after all. There is a rhetorical slate of hand going on here. There is a fork in the road to serfdom. Hayek is an unacknowledged but important inspiration for Stein. And it is not tr just not true that all roads lead to Armageddon. Stein is a mythologist of decline, but he is no declinist. On the contrary, he would doubtless, like me, blame declinists for talking their countrymen into accelerating decline. The difference between us is that, like Adam Smith, I believe there is a great deal of ruin in a nation and a great deal of decline in the West. The United States still represents the antithesis of the fatalism which dominates both the Islamic world and China. The impersonal determinism that is characteristic both of Chinese communism and Islamic kismet seems to me a dubious basis for world domination. We live in an era that still values individual liberty for all the infantilizing effects of paternalistic statism. These lunacies, all of which Mark Stein lovingly dissects, are nonetheless byproducts of free choices. America always does the right thing in the end once it has exhausted all the other options. <laughs> Nothing less than 9-11 would have made it possible for America to strike back hard at radical Islamists. Nothing less than the worst president for a century would have produced such a rapid reaction against his excesses as we are now witnessing. The mythology of decline can only capture the national imagination if we abandon the distinction between rationality and fantasy. America, okay, it may yet be dragged down by the dead weight of defunct ideas once thought progressive. More likely, I reckon, is that the founding fathers will once again be vindicated. They trusted in the good sense of the American people. Gibbon was right to continue his history of the decline and <coughs> fall of the Roman Empire for another thousand years after the sack of Rome. His real subject is the persistence of Roman ideas and institutions long after their creators. Indeed, he might have found continuities long after the fall of Constantinople in 1453, which he made his terminus ad quem. Indeed, the last legitimate heir of the Roman emperors has only just died, Otto von Habsburg. And Rome still has its Pontifex Maximus. So it is with Western civilization, which survived even the most destructive wars in history. So too with the United States, which has been able to flourish in good times and in bad, thanks to the foresight of its founders. Nobody has written the decline and fall of the American empire for the excellent reason that there is no such thing. A republic, not an empire, may, like Venice, endure for a millennium. The United States is already older 
than all but a handful of polities on this planet, including the United Kingdom, which was formally created a full quarter of a century after 1776, and may now be about to break up thanks to the Scots. <laughs> Yet, the US is still, you know, it's actually quite an old country, but it's still constantly rejuvenating itself. Next year's anniversary of the War of 1812, to which uh, we had some allusions earlier, is a chance for the two great Anglophone nations to reflect on how past and present differences have been outweighed in the long run by our common heritage and shared sacrifice. Whether or not one or other is in decline at any one time, often enough, as with Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, their fluctuations are synchronic. Great Britain and the United States stand or fall together. Not the least of the reasons why I look forward to the resurgence of America under a new president is that I am confident that Britain too will follow suit. Thank you very much. Thank you.